Well, it's officially the Christmas season. We're in the month of December, and I know many of us have our minds focused on things like decorations and buying Christmas presents and time off from work and kids being on holiday. And so I know that a lot of us have these kinds of thoughts swirling in our minds. Maybe it's on eating holiday food. Those of us that Americans had Thanksgiving last week and ate way too much rich food. And I know that in our family, we do all kinds of Christmas festivities, and it's just a wonderful time. And not that it's bad to celebrate Christmas with all of these different ways, with all the festivities, but one thing that I do want to mention is that as we really enter into this Christmas season, I want to ask you a question. What are you most looking forward to this Christmas? I want to say ponder that for a moment. As you think about what you're into this season, what's on your mind that you're really most wanting, you're most hoping for, most really looking forward to? My prayer for myself, my family, and for our faith family is that this Christmas season that we will truly see Jesus, that we will see him, because what we need most is not one more present. What we need most is the presence of Christ in our lives. We need to see him and experience him, get a glimpse of his glory, maybe in a way that you never have before. Today we begin a new teaching series through the month of December, series that will be based on the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and 2. And so we'll go through it verse by verse for the next several weeks and this month, including a Christmas Eve service that, that we'll have in the Mafrak Hotel, so we're very excited about that. This series is called, What Child Is This? A phrase that's in a well-known Christmas carol. What child is this? We're talking about seeing Jesus at Christmas. Really getting a glimpse of who he is. Matthew chapter 1 and 2 that we'll look at this month. It clearly and beautifully reveals who Jesus is and why he came. It's a glorious portrait of who our Savior is. And so when I say that we need to see Jesus, the starting point here is that our God in heaven is infinitely perfect, that he is beautiful, that he is wise, that he is holy, that our God is stunningly magnificent. That's who our God is. And just like the sun radiates light, and the sun radiates heat, our God radiates glory. And so God's aim in all that he does is to glorify himself. And so we, as image bearers of God, we exist to see his glory, and then to find our joy in it, and then to reflect his glory. And that's why he made us, that is our purpose So God is glorified in your life and in my life when we recognize his glory and then we respond to it by treasuring and enjoying him more than anything else that this world has to offer. Now that sounds easy enough, right? I mean, this is church language. You hear this kind of message most Fridays, which is a good thing. It sounds, oh yeah, I can do that. But there's a problem. Our problem is our sin. 
And our sin blinds us and prevents us from seeing the glory of God. And if we don't see it, then we can't reflect it. And so if you look at Psalm 135, I'll read you a portion of it. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, describe. It says that idols are the work of human hands. They have eyes, but do not see. And those who make them become like them. And so because of sin in our hearts, our, our idolatry, whenever we are looking to find joy and comfort and meaning and security and anything other than God, we make that to be an idol. We're worshiping that instead of God. And so connected to idolatry, in Psalm 135, is spiritual blindness. You have eyes and yet do not see. And so what is a solution for spiritual blindness? 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, The God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let the, shine, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, the darkness is pushed back, and we're able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so how do you see God's glory? How do you see the glory of Jesus? Well, God reveals himself in his word. And then as we read his word, his Holy Spirit activates our faith. And then with the eyes of faith, we can actually see Jesus who is in heaven. And so we can't physically see him. So this language of seeing the glory of Jesus can be sometimes difficult for us because we can't physically see him. So the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. And so hearing God's word is the means. And so hearing is the means. Seeing is the goal. The Bible never says that you should hear the glory of God. It says you hear by faith, and then your eyes of faith are open, and then you can see the glory of God. And so that is what we do as followers of Jesus, is we see his infinite beauty. And so the aim of all of our hearing of God's word, so the aim of our hearing of God's truth is the seeing of his glory. And one day we'll be in heaven and you and I will not need faith anymore because you will see Jesus as he is and your faith will be made sight and you will physically see him and enjoy him, but we're not in heaven yet. And so we need faith, empowered by his spirit as we hear his word to see his glory. And when we hear the gospel, the truth of Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins, and we respond to him with complete trust and repentance, then his spirit begins to do that. And so if you're here today and you have never seen the glory of God, then I'm praying that today you will. That today you'll get a glimpse of his glory. And for those of us that are already disciples of Jesus, 
We need to continue to see the glory of Jesus every single day. So this is a key, daily spiritual growth and overcoming sinful temptations and sinful desires is only possible when you see more beauty, more glory in Jesus than in that which our idols would offer us. So it's continuing daily to see him that gives us victory in our lives. And so this Christmas season, I don't know about for you, but for me, at times can be stressful. Or is it just me? Anyone ever get stressed out in Christmas time? No one raises their hands. Liars! I know for a fact. Okay, I know I'm kind of a geek, but we sat down this week with my laptop and had my Excel spreadsheet, and we were planning our Christmas budget and who we were going to buy a present for, and maybe we were going to get them, and how much it's going to cost. We can actually pay for it, not go in debt. And so if you're not doing that, you should, for the record, sidebar. That one's free. But here's the point. We're sitting down, we're looking at last year, we got people, and then I felt myself getting really stressed out. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, but what if, what if I forget to include someone in my spreadsheet? And then what happens if, if they get me a gift and I didn't get them a gift? And then I'm going to feel really bad. And then there's certain people that give you really nice gifts. You know them, right? People that go really overboard and give you really expensive gifts. And you think, I wasn't buy him a book. And then, and then you feel bad about that. And then, and then you get so stressed out on, is this going to be like the perfect Christmas for our children? And, and we can get so wrapped up in how we're going to celebrate Christmas. And so much of it tends to be around giving gifts and how, how we're going to, quote, celebrate it. But I had to just stop and think, okay, I, I'm already missing that which I'm going to be preaching on on Friday. Which is the goal is to see the glory of Jesus and Christmas, the way we celebrate it with all of the other elements, which becomes my home, it's, it's very Christmased. It is. It's very decorated, and, and we, we love that, but that is a reminder. It ought to be a reminder of the reason. So don't miss seeing Jesus and seeing his glory this Christmas. Do you truly want, as we just read in 2 Corinthians 4, do you truly want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this Christmas? The Holy Spirit is the only one that makes that possible. He opens your eyes of faith so you can see the face of Jesus. And it only happens when we are focusing our minds and our lives on the Word of God. And then the Spirit begins to do His work. He begins to transform our hearts, and we desire Jesus more than anything else. And so let me give you the series theme for this month out of Matthew 1 and 2. It's on the screens. The theme for this month is that Jesus is God incarnate who has come to rescue his people and live with them. Now, there's a big word in the middle. Jesus is God incarnate. You're thinking, well, what does that mean well, I speak Spanish, so that word is very easy for me. Carne is meat. That's the word for it. If you speak Spanish, la raza loca, right? So Spanish, it, it, it lets you see this clearly. So the word carne means flesh. 
So humanity, so to incarnate means to become flesh, to become human. And so Jesus is the eternal Son of God, has always existed. Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal. And yet, at Christmas, we remember and we celebrate the reality that the eternal Son of God has become a human. He's incarnated. He has become flesh, just like you and me. He has a body. He is fully God and fully human. So Jesus is God. He's human, and he has come to rescue his people and to live with them. He's with us. His spirit indwells us, and we wait that day when he returns in full glory and be with him forever. And so let's begin reading out of Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses as we begin this series. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I already know what some of you are thinking. I, I, I mean, I can read your minds. I can't, but I can. You're thinking, really? A list of names? You're preaching on the list of names. What in the world does all of this long list of names, some for a Western tongue, a little bit hard to pronounce. So what does this list of names show us about the glory of God? You spent all this time talking about this series and how we need to see the glory of God. And, and seeing his glory is what transforms our hearts. And then you read a list of names. This is God's inspired word. And with the help of his spirit, we will get a glimpse of God's indescribable beauty and glory through this list of names. And we'll be further transformed and desire Jesus more. Let me give you the main idea of this list of names. Matthew 1, 
1 through 17. The main idea here, the truth that's being taught here is that Jesus is a fulfillment of God's purposes. So don't get lost with the list of names and miss what God is revealing here. The truth here is that Jesus is a fulfillment of God's purposes. See, the entire Old Testament is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you see in Genesis chapter 3, that God made a promise. He promised that one day a man will come, descendant of a woman, and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the enemy. He'll defeat Satan. And then he promised later through Abraham in, in chapter 12 of Genesis and again in 17, he promised that a descendant of Abraham will one day come and he will be a blessing to all the peoples, all the nations of the world. And then as we're looking through in Joshua, taking a break for December, we've been looking at in there and how God promised them to give them a land, an inheritance where they will one day for eternity rest securely and enjoy God forever. God then promised through Jeremiah that one day he will have a new covenant with God's people and that he will restore his relationship that's been broken. And there are so many more examples. This is just a handful of promises that God made in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is Israel's hope. The hope for all nations is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So the Old Testament was promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. So the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus and his gospel of grace. Which is why you see in verse 1, the book of the, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When you see there the word book, you know what that is in Greek? Biblios, which is the word for Bible. And so we call this the Bible because that's the word in Greek. Bible is book. That's what the word means. And so we see here book, it's describing something, a written record. And so we call this the Bible because we're saying this is the book. They're saying that this book stands alone. There's no other book like it. This is God's revelation recorded for saints of all times. And this is the final authority in our lives. This is the book. This is the Bible. So this is saying here, this is, this is a record, a written record. It says of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now the word genealogy in the original is the word Genesis. That sound familiar? There's a book called Genesis, and the word Genesis means beginnings, it means origins. And so what you're seeing here, this is describing, if you read this more literally, it says this is the record of a new beginnings of Jesus Christ. So this is profound. This is describing how this genealogy is describing something new, a new beginning, a Genesis that God is doing through Jesus, something new has happened. All of the fulfillments of the Old Testament, which are all pointing to Jesus, and now the Messiah has finally come. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah and the word Christ are the same. So if you read the word Christ, like you do here in verse 1, well, that's just a translation in Greek from the Old Testament Hebrew word for Messiah. So Christ means Messiah. Now, jump to the very end, the last two verses in this chapter. And it says in verse 16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, who is called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he's saying here, the Christ, the Messiah. And so what you're seeing here is very important. It's saying Jesus is a fulfillment of all of God's promises and all of his purposes are fulfilled in the Christ. And so God promised to redeem his people and God's ultimate solution for the problem of sin has arrived. And the solution, his name is Jesus. And it's all about him. And so what child is this? This child is Messiah. He's the only hope for the world. He alone is the hope. He's accomplished all of God's purposes. So let's look at these lists of names, and I won't read it again, but let's look at this list of names and let's, let's pull out, let's see what God is revealing here of how Jesus is revealing, how Jesus is accomplishing God's purposes. And may we see his glory and be transformed. So number one, Jesus reveals God's glory as the purpose of human history. It's on the screens if you're taking notes. And so Jesus reveals God's glory as the purpose of human history. And you see that in Galatians chapter 4, Apostle Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his Son. And so the eternal Son of God becoming a human being, being incarnated, to himself, so God came down himself, Jesus, to redeem humanity from slavery. And this is seen as a culmination of all of human history. And so human history is not random. It's going somewhere. It's moving somewhere intentionally. And the genealogy is capturing that with three major events. And so first it says, from Abraham to David. And so the calling of Abraham to be the father of God's people, all the way to King David, who was a prototype Messiah. And so he's describing that era of history, these 14 generations, as one major section of human history. And then he describes a section major, major section from King David to, he says, Babylon. Well, what happened with Babylon in 586 B.C.? So 6th century B.C., the nation of Babylon the world power came in, destroyed Israel, destroyed the kingdom of Judah, destroyed the temple, and took the survivors back to Babylon. So if you've heard of a young man named Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're thinking, oh yeah, I remember them. Yeah, those guys, they were taken to Babylon during the exile, 600 years before Jesus came. And so that was a major event in human history. And so he's describing that even Jesus is a part of that. And then he says from Babylon, the exile, to the Messiah's birth, the Christ. And so he is using these three major events to show us something. That all of human history is pointing to Jesus. This is not just a family tree. This is more than just, oh, how great I can trace and all of my family, how many generations, and it's, it's really neat, and I can email it and say, look at my family tree. This is not just a family tree. This is something much deeper, more profound. 
And by the way, it's not even, as far as family tree is concerned, it's not even exact in the sense that it skips generations. And so not every single person in Christ's lineage is listed here. Because in the, in the, in the Jewish thinking, the word son of could mean grandson. Or son of could even mean like great-grandson. Or it could even mean beyond that, descendant of. And so Jesus here is called the son of Abraham. Yeah, well, he was born thousands of years after Abraham, but he's a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he's a son of Abraham. He's called the son of David. And that was a thousand years before Jesus was born. He's the son of David in the lineage of David. And so everyone here is in Christ's lineage, but generations were skipped. But that isn't the point. The point that's important that's being made here is that Jesus is a fulfillment of all of God's purposes, and even all of human history has its purpose in him. And so Christ is the center. We even keep our our dates, our years based upon Jesus. So we're in 2014. Since when? What is that year based on? Jesus? He is the center of all of human history. And God is moving history Somewhere. There are a lot of worldviews that would say, oh, history is meaningless and it's cyclical. And, and the point is, it's just through reincarnation to finally get out of human history. And, and it's just an illusion. All these different ways of seeing human history. And the reality is the Bible is very clear. Human history matters. And it's not random. And God is sovereign over it. And so God is moving human history to one day its final culmination when Jesus, who is a resurrected and glorified Jesus, will be living with resurrected and glorified people, living on a resurrected and glorified earth, who are going to be enjoying Jesus forever. In human history, that's where it's moving. That's where God is taking it. And so when we proclaim the gospel, when we tell people that Jesus came with the perfect life, Again, in actual, verifiable human history, we're saying something. This is not just, oh, this is just spiritual. No, it is spiritual, but it's actual. So let's not confuse, oh, it's spiritual as though somehow it's not actually in human history. It is. And Christ is the purpose of human history. So what does this mean for you today? Like when you think about this, okay, well, that sounds really great when they will be in heaven, but what about today? I need to follow Jesus today. And so how does, how does Christ being the purpose of human history matter to me today? In the middle of the mundane, is life ever mundane for you? Is life ever monotonous or repetitive? I mean, it's so hard for me. Because there's only one main way to get to the high from my house. And I hate that. I wish there was multiple roads. Because I get so sick of driving on the same roundabouts with the same speed. Mountains, forget humps, they're huge in Khalifa City. And driving next to Mazdar City every single day. It just gets so old. Or is it just me? Life can at times be quite monotonous and repetitive and mundane. It really can. But it's not even just that. Sometimes life is very painful or disappointing. It really can be. Life can be really hard. I mean, my wife and I have been in this process to adopt 
children for now about a year and a half, and we thought for sure we'd have them with us for Christmas. To be very honest with you, it was kind of hard this week to unpack and decorate for Christmas without our babies. And we don't know when we're going to get them. But we have faith. That in God's time, it'll happen. And yet it's hard. And we cry together. And we pray together. And we trust our Savior together. But life can be monotonous. and Life can be difficult and painful and disappointing. And sometimes we have struggles. And you think you overcome a struggle. And in the middle of that, another one comes up. You're like, oh, where is this even coming from? Or, or you think you had that one conquered. And then it just shows up again. And then you have conflict with people. And you try to resolve. And it doesn't always work out. And not everyone likes you. Believe it or not, not everyone likes me. In the middle of life, with all of its ebb and flow and all of its challenges, apart from Jesus, life is meaningless and boring and insipid and sadly repetitive. It is. Apart from Jesus, all you have to live for is what? More money? More sex? Better looking? I don't know, vacations? You name it. I don't know what you're living for. But if you're not living for Jesus, let me tell you this. It won't satisfy. It won't. And in the middle of your life, with all of it just sometimes being seemingly insignificant and seemingly small, Remember this, the purpose of human history is the glory of Jesus, and you are a part of that story. Your life matters. Your life is not insignificant. Your life is not boring. And I guess it is. No, it's not. You have Jesus in your life. He is the king. He is the purpose of all human history, and your life is a part of it. You see, what God wants for you and for me most, honestly, is that we have joy. He wants you to have joy. And he offers you the best. He offers you himself. He says, here, I made you for joy, and so I offer you me. Let me satisfy you. Jesus says he's living water and that he is bread of life, the manna that came down from heaven to satisfy us. And so we're designed to be satisfied. We're not designed for boredom and and monotony. We're not. We're designed for joy and pleasures evermore. But the only way that's possible is to find joy in Him. That's it. Which is why God sent Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, the Incarnation. Joy to the world. Why? The King has which is the second point. God reveals, or Jesus reveals God's glory as, number two, the true king. Let earth receive her king. What we see here is this list of names reveals that Jesus is the true king. The word Messiah means anointed one. So when you see Christ, the word is Messiah. And the word Messiah, what it means is anointed one. And so it refers to the ancient practice of anointing kings with oil when they took over the throne, like King David. And before that, King Saul had their heads anointed with oil. So it was a symbolic way of saying this is God's anointed one. This is the one to lead God's people. 
So when Babylon invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, that was the end of kings in Israel. So for six centuries before Christ came, there had been no king in Israel. The dynasty ended, and everyone was waiting for the Messiah because the Messiah was to be king. We read earlier, our brother Bud Cheeks read out of Psalm 2 earlier. Describes the Lord's anointed. I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill says you are my son. And so Psalm 2 is a prophecy talking about Jesus, my son, the king, my anointed one. This is all talking about Jesus. And you see this clearly in this genealogy. Because at the center, what you have is the son of David. That's who Jesus is. It's repeated, son of David. The promised Messiah would be the king who would deliver Israel from all her enemies and usher in an era of peace known as the Messianic Age in Jewish thinking. And so they were waiting for the Messianic Age. They were waiting for the Messiah, king, to come. And so what you see here in Matthew 1 is a focal point of the Messiah is the son of David. The true heir to the throne has finally come. And so this genealogy is not a list of names. Well, it is, but it's more than that. The meaning is profound. The meaning is it's proving, it's authenticating that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus is king. So this genealogy, name after name after name, is screaming one primary truth. Jesus is king. It's verifying his royalty. He is the son of David. And right now, King Jesus is ruling in the hearts of his people. Those of us that have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, he is our king. And so he's ruling in this church. He's ruling in many other places where there are people who love Jesus and submit to him. He's our king. But there are many people, and we know who they are. They're all around us, billions on this planet that refuse that they don't see Jesus as king. They deny his authority. They deny his kingship. And they made themselves kings of their own world. And they don't follow the one true king. Our allegiance should be to Christ's kingdom. One day he's going to come back in full glory. Christ the king will return. He will defeat Satan. He'll crush the head of the serpent. And all those that have been opposed to God's kingdom, all those that have said no and are opposing his kingdom, all of God's enemies will face eternal judgment. And those of us that lovingly, joyfully follow the king will be ushered into his kingdom forever. The new heavens, the new earth, will Christ will rule on this earth, but a resurrected, glorified one. And every knee will bow. Every nation will be under the authority of King Jesus. And that's coming. But that's in heaven. That hasn't happened yet. And so what do we do? We tell people. We make friendships. We build friendships with people and we tell them Jesus is king and he'll offer you joy if you repent of your sins and submit yourself to him. Give your life to the king. There's joy nowhere else. He died for you. He loves you. We tell people. Otherwise, they have no hope. How do we respond to Jesus as king? We obey. Obediently. 
following him. I want you to picture three children. Oldest one, maybe teenager, right? So older child and two younger ones. And the parents leave to go run errands, maybe Christmas shopping, all right? And so they leave the three kids at home. And the mom hands the eldest son a note with instructions what to do that day. And on this instructions written note, it also says, please clean the kitchen. Now, the parents leave, and so these three kids are hanging out. They're playing Xbox. They're riding their bikes. They're just having a good time. And they completely forget about the written instructions, and they don't clean the kitchen. Now, mom arrives and sees the house is worse than it was before she left. The kitchen's not clean. And she says, why didn't you clean the kitchen? Which, by the way, Bonnie and I don't ever ask that question. We don't ask our kids why. Because I know why, because they're sinful. So I don't even have to ask why. I just say, you didn't clean the kitchen, and then you spank them, or you discipline them, or whatever it is. So we don't even ask why. But this mom did, okay, in this story. So this mom asks, why didn't you clean the kitchen? And so the eldest son, the spokesman, who received the written note instructions, says, well, mom, we forgot. And we just remembered minutes ago, right before you got back. So we knew that it was too late. We knew that we didn't have enough time to clean the kitchen, so we said, well... We know you'd be okay with us not doing it because we forgot and there wasn't enough time we remembered. Ridiculous, right? It's just, it sounds preposterous. And yet, we do that all the time. We have written instructions from the authority in our lives. God's word. Written instructions. And yet, Oftentimes, we don't do it because we get busy, we get caught up, we forget, our focus is elsewhere, and then we catch ourselves, oh, no, I've been disobeying. My life is getting out of control a little bit or whatever it might be, and then we think, oh, well, I already blew it. It's too late. I'll just keep on doing what I've been doing. It's what I know. It's what I'm comfortable with. Rather than stopping and turning around, which is repentance is just that. Stop and turn around and go the other way. And so we do this all the time. And sin destroys. But the reality is that sometimes we don't want to submit to our king because it's much easier to take the authority into our own hands. It's easier to ignore the Bible because you know what happens to us? This is me too, not just you. Happens to us whenever we begin to ignore God's word. It becomes very easy for us to, first of all, deny our sin. We we, we just deny it. No, I don't have a problem. No, I'm fine. Really? No, you're not. But it's easy to deny it whenever we're not submitting ourselves to God's word. Either we'll deny or maybe some of you don't deny your sin, but you're good at maybe you shift the blame. And, oh, yes, I did that, but it's not my fault. It's, it's my boss or my wife or my husband or my kid or life circumstances or this situation. And we find every possible reason or excuse why we did what we did or why we're not obeying and we shift blame. Or maybe you don't do those, but your, your preferred method is maybe minimizing. And so you don't do the first two, but you're like, well, yeah, but it's a small problem. It's a little sin. It's okay. God, God doesn't care that much about my, my, my little one. And so we tend to minimize sometimes what we're going through. But if we're submitting ourselves to our king, then we don't have those options. Our response to King Jesus must be a bowed heart. 
where we say, I want so much of your presence. I don't want anything to cloud it, nothing to get in the way. And so I want to enjoy Jesus and not the idols out of love for him. And so we must continue daily to see his glory. Lastly, as we close, the only Redeemer. And so Christ reveals God's glory as the only Redeemer. I won't go into this very long because our time is about up. But in your home, you will in much more detail. There are several names here that stand out. One is David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Another one is Tamar. She prostituted herself with her father-in-law, so it was even incest. And you have Rahab, a professional prostitute. You have Ruth, who was a Moabite, an outcast from the enemies of God's people. I mean, this is just a quick glance at some people that were really flawed, that were not holy people. They were just like you and me, sinful people who needed God to save them. And yet God used these normal, sinful people to bring us the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So that's what he does. He uses people like you and me that are normal and flawed, sinful, and he uses us to accomplish his purposes. This is powerful. Maybe you think, I don't have anything to offer. No, you do. Christ has come to redeem you, to liberate you from your slavery. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is the Savior of all those people that God used to bring him into the world. And so God has plans for your life. He really does. But the question for us, will we delight in Jesus and allow him to display his glory through us? So this Christmas season, We celebrate, we think about the incarnation, how Christ became a human to save us, to offer us forgiveness. Talking about forgiveness isn't quite that easy. It really is a complex thought. A lot of times we want forgiveness and we'll ask, will you please forgive me? But then we attach an excuse. You say, oh, forgive me, but this is why I did that. And the reality is that we don't really want forgiveness. We actually do want to be excused. We want a pass. But the point of forgiveness is that there's no excuses. And so forgiveness begins when excuses end. When you acknowledge that you need forgiveness and that you can't earn it. And it's inexcusable. And yet God forgives the inexcusable because Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. And we stand forgiven. And so now we forgive others. Jesus is glorious. We focus our attention on him. And maybe you've never received his forgiveness. You can do it today. Will you? And if you are following Jesus, we focus on him this season. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you've spoken to us. You've given us your word. You've given us hope. You've given us joy. An eternal future that awaits us. And you are moving this history to its culmination. We will be with you forever. You are our king and you are our redeemer, Jesus. I pray you would help us this Christmas season to focus truly on you and to see your glory. I thank you for hearing us. I thank you that we can gather in your name. Sing your praises. Focus on your word. 
and experience a transformation that we so desire. We praise you for you are worthy. And we pray in your name, Jesus.